welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Hello, Damons, and welcome to another episode of Damonosophy 2.0, the only podcast fighting for liberty and the left-hand path. My guest today is Mr. D. Sharp. How about those titles? <laughs> and also, as everyone knows these days, it seems like all the great left-hand path magicians are also left-hand path musicians. And so... Right. D-Sharp is also in the band End Time Illusion, Dead by Wednesday, and Dave Sharp and the Solar Power. That's right. Pretty intense. Yeah, it's excellent. So, um, so cue everyone in here. Let's start, let's start, let's, let's, let's go back in time a little bit. Let's talk about how did you find the left-hand path? Well, first, I was thinking when I said hello, I should probably say aloha because the last time we met was at uh, the break at Kahalu Big Island, Hawaii. Oh my God, that's right. So yeah, that kind of throw throw us back to that real quick. No, I should have mentioned that. That's a very important aspect of this whole thing. Is that D Sharp and I have been surfing together on the big waves in Kona, right? That's right. It's pretty hellish. That's right, like Poseidon of Thebes. Uh killing it in Pantalasia. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I can think about well, yeah. now. All I can think about now is uh, you know, <laughs> eating waves. <laughs> eating that's waves right. and, and and paddling desperately so I don't get like uh, dashed into the black volcanic rock. <laughs> that's right. And, and interestingly enough, you, you think about that we left and within a month, you know, the the island's been consumed with uh, lava and fire, so We'll leave it at that. It's so bizarre, man. It's so bizarre. <laughs> and appropriate. So hopefully everyone's all safe. Yeah. 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 So there was this big but mystery. Yeah, there was this big mystery on the island. Now we're talking about the island. So let's just get right into this. I kept seeing these pictures, yeah. these paintings on the island that would have, um, it's like a painting, it's like a landscape painting at night. And there's a moon and there's ocean water and there's volcanic lava flowing all over everything. And I saw like, you know, like five or six paintings, a hotel, different places of right. this. And so, I don't know, that's just the image I have, like going away from that whole experience. It's like moonlight, water, and lava. Yeah, it was very uh, mesmer- mesmerizing. And uh, another interesting point there is uh, the presentation that I did was on lunar magic, which, you know, we could probably touch on at some point later on in our conversation. But yes, those paintings certainly resonated with me and my work. And I think the group that we had there for sure. Well, definitely. Well, let's get into it. Tell me about, tell me about lunar magic. Yeah. So last few years I've been, uh, 
actually, you know, my, my whole life, you, you, you mentioned, you know, how, how did I get into this? I think, you know, when you're a young child, you, you look up at the sky, you get outside and you're just a little mesmerized by these, uh, the stars, the, the sun, the moon, and, uh, you haven't really been told, you know, the scientific aspects yet. So you're, you're not really clouded with this academic research or so-called, um, so it's still a mystery for you. So I, you know, as a young child, I, you know, thought about what's this Mysterion, which I guess, you know, I, I use kind of more of the Hellenistic term for mystery here, but you know, that there's, there's something else going on outside of, you know, what, what we get taught in our textbooks and, and whatnot. There's like another di dimensional aspect, but the moon's always held a lot of mystery with me. Um, not only because of the regulation of cycles and, and things like that, but it's the closest neighbor, but it seems like it's something that we, we know the least about. Um, and, you know, being a very, very, very amateur astronomer, looking at the night sky, seeing some anomalies on the moon. Um, so that kind of led to just, you know, winding down at night and watching some like conspiracy theory videos and things like that, like what, what's possibly going on and what, what's the origin of, of the moon. So I decided to, you know, spend a little bit of time doing some more academic research uh, myself, but then trying to find out like what, what is that resonance with the moon to myself and um, trying to decode a couple dreams I had when I was, you know, maybe around four or five that, that really spoke to me uh, about the moon. So what I came as a conclusion of a long meditation was that I'd always kind of resonated this, this uh, female aspect um, resonance with the moon, kind of more like a, a Luna, but this meditation I had, I actually kind of had this vision of Kanzu, which is the Egyptian, uh, male deity of uh the moon so i started a project which i call um the kanzu satellite and what the work that came out of that was essentially you know the moon being a traveler how does that work in relation to us what's what's an analogy to, to our own initiations and work and what i came to conclude was my work with investigating consciousness and, and the root of consciousness and even looking into like what, you know, David Chalmers would call the hard problem. Where, where is consciousness rooted? Um, I came up with like a model for my own lunar magic where the satellite, like the moon and earth relation is really consciousness evolving around our own body. Right. So mm -hmm. we typically think of consciousness as being embedded within us. Yet, on the other hand, we say, well, if the meat machine were to perish, my consciousness could live on in some type of deification form. Like, we might have that choice if we're, you know, mentally strong enough. So, if that's the case, are we really, can we detach our consciousness? And how does that consciousness look in a model form? And to me, it's kind of like the satellite that's outside the scope of just our flesh and body, um, but yet connected intrinsically to our thoughts and our actions and how we govern ourselves. And the watchword that I came up with when I was doing this work was, was governance, right? Mm -hmm. And you think if we go back to, you know, the reality of, of what the calendar would really look like outside of this Gregorian calendar that got, you know, kind of messed up with the perfect 12 months and, you know, days that you just, you can never, it's a kind of a confusing calendar, right? You know, you got 30 days or 31 days, the days of the week are never perfectly at the each day, each, each month. Right. But if you looked at the moon, it's really, you know, you got a 28 day cycle, give or take, um, things have been skewed a little bit over the years as the moon kind of, you know, moves a little bit away each year. 
but technically you could have four seven-day weeks. You know, Thursday is always going to be a Thursday, and you get 13 months. And you, you got to wonder if it's a, you know, people are afraid of the number 13. Is that why we went back to a 12-month or, or made this 12-month calendar? So things got to skew. But if you really look at a governing factor, you could have, you know, four seven-day weeks, 13 months, and it would kind of be more of a perfect assembly. And then, you know, maybe you have to have this leap year where you add a day um, to, to even things out every few years, right? Um, but really, it's a governance. So my work was basically looking at taking the front side face of how we appear to others and then also this dark side, right? Because the weird thing about the moon, also an anomaly, is that it's always facing one side, but we have dark aspects of ourselves, these magical aspects that people really don't know about or ever see, and we're constantly seeking mystery to find out about ourselves and unlock these to this dark side. So that was kind of the basis of, or the thesis of my work here, is that this governing factor of consciousness and how we have front-facing uh, masks that we wear in our day-to-day lives, but we also have this dark side that, that's mysterious that people really don't see, and even ourselves we're trying to uncover. Right. So, I mean, there's like so much uh, mythology and, and esoteric uh, knowledge that places the moon in this significant role, not only with, with consciousness, but also, um, like you said, with mystery and stuff. So have you heard that um, Elon Musk is like with, with SpaceX, they're like announcing like the first passenger uh, passenger ship to the moon? And he, and he took like um, some Japanese guy bought into it. He's the first guy who's going to take the passenger ship to the moon if the project comes into the being comes into being. Have you heard about right, that? Right, right. Yeah, I, I have. I have. You know, I, I think it's great to get outside of a like government agency having to basically run a space program because you know you, you're not really getting you know as far as I can tell a straight answer from say NASA, mm-hmm. right? And it's. You know, it's funded by the government. They're taking our tax money, so we should be, really be in the know. And I personally feel that's probably why we're moving away from something like NASA, because now if they go to a government agency, they can kind of uh, restrict, you know, what, what's what's going on behind the scenes. So for a public agency or private entity that's a corporation to be able to to do that type of work, I, I think is excellent. Um, I have my apprehension about getting past, say, the Van Allen Bell and radiation, solar flares, and things like that. Just uh, you know, human beings aren't meant to probably be in that space, obviously. And it's, you know, even though we have maybe lead or things like that that we can encase in our uh, vehicles, I'm I'm not so sure that the the uh, type of rocketry that we have is proficient to do that type of work. I guess I'm kind of a naysayer that we've actually been to the moon as uh, that humans have been to the moon. I believe you know we've probably sent orbiters up there, but. That's a whole other discussion, I guess, for a conspiracy podcast, I suppose. Yeah. So, I mean, that was going to be my next question. I mean, that's what everything hinges on here as far as like Elon Musk going to the moon. The big question is, have we been there before, really, you know? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it could really go either way. I mean, I there's really not conclusive proof either way. I do believe that you know we have the have orbiter pictures a lot of those which have been kind of skewed or hidden uh from the public if you look at the russian orbiter zond 
they they got the first pictures of the dark side of the moon in the mid 60s and you can see evidence of you know a lot of anomalies on that side there's like the, what we call a tower of babel you know like miles high towers and things like that and that just goes back to you know what what what's the origin here so when I was doing my work what I actually did was I broke down um this work into some different categories using the word uh daemon you know, I, I broke it down into like, you know, Diaz design, you know, what are the peculiarities of the moon's placement, you know, the exact distance from the earth, you know, that we can actually have, you know, we can, we can block the sun and things like that. It's just a very, very strange that it, it's pl- placed where it is. You know, you got Neptunium, titanium, uranium, these, these elements that have supposedly been collected from the moon that just don't seem natural, but actually seem natural to the, the work of different type of manufacturing plantations or nuclear fission and things like that. So that's, that's very odd. And then a, you know, anomalies, there's just so many anomalies. Um, that's kind of the fun stuff. When you look at pictures of the moon, like possible structures, you know, you say there's craters, but you know, if you look at what, what these craters are, the, the width of the crater and the depth don't really match like a meteor impact. It's not like a perfect circle or anything. So you, you kind of wonder, you know, there's a lot of tunnels and things like that going on. If, if you really look at some of the, the prints, um, you know, I for influence, what's the influence that the moon has on us? Um, you know, people talk about the documented case of the crazies. It's, you know, the, the, the data out there is a little bit skewed. Um, it's not as bad as everybody thinks that, you know, there's all these births and people are doing crazy stuff, but they're obviously menstrual cycles and things like that. The waves pick up. So there, there is some type of influence and then it could be all, you know, the whole system of magic that you can, uh, place around, you know, the, the moon, it's really in the eye of the, the beholder, you know, the waxing and waning of your will, um, love, compassion, destruction, you know, what's your objective, in your work um it's an illumination of your basically your inner daemon and then origin you know there's a book that came out in the early 70s um that maybe the moon was actually brought here or it's like a alien spacecraft i mean it's, it sounds a little far-fetched but you know they talk about when they dropped um things on the moon it rang like a bell so is it hollow is that the case if that's the case can you you know it, is it built for protection to be able to travel in the sky? And like, there's an, some inner type of base there. Who knows? It's just more science fiction kind of, uh, you know, fantasy kind of um, entertainment, if you will. Um, well, that gets into it, now you're getting into hollow earth theory because uh, see, that's <laughs> one. No, that's one of the things I, I saw about hollow earth theory is that um, which I hadn't considered before. I'd I'd, I'd, I'd uh, come into contact with hollow earth theory many years ago. Um, I think in uh, the book Morning Morning of the Magicians, um, I right. thought, well, that's that's like fucking fascinating. But then I saw recently, it's like so this theory is expanded to like all of the planets in in the solar system, like all the planets and moons are probably hollow also, and this just has to do with with the design of them or the the evolution, right. just how these bodies like like appears that like you know hollowness naturally. Um, you know, appears within them. But I mean, well, A, that would explain why it rings like a bell when you drop something on the moon. But B, right. B it also could explain like where, um, where other civilizations could be uh, throughout the solar system, even though we don't see them on the surface. Right. So just because we, you know, have this carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen base, and we have to, we need the sun and fresh air and this, that, or the other does not necessarily mean that other life needs that. I mean, if you go, 
50 miles underneath the ocean, you can find these glow-in-the-dark, you know, elemental fish that feed off the bottom and they can live in compression and things like that. So life's pretty profound and dynamic that it can kind of live anywhere, right? I mean, even when we see cut into meteors, you can see uh, cells on them and, and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, that discussion came up recently with all the, the oddness going on in Antarctica. And, I mean, if you think about it, even, you know, you go down, what is it, 70 feet or so into the earth, it's, it's always 55 degrees. So, you know, they have old Newgate prison up in uh, East Granby, Connecticut, where they used to put the prisoners underground. They could stay there all winter because it was 55 degrees. I remember taking field trips there. And so that kind of like makes you think, okay, you, you can live in, in on, under the earth. And there's somewhere in Europe where there's, there's like a whole network of tunnels where like it can fit 30,000 people. So it's, you know, it's not such a uh, obscure thought. No, you see things like that and you're like, well, that's not so that's not so far fetched because the possibility is there. Um and I think one of the problems though is you you mentioned, you know, um you know, the government um version of of the lunar landing and stuff like that. And one of the problems is that you know, a, enough like um discrepancies come out about the official story on things and then suddenly no one knows what to believe. Right, no one, no one knows who to take seriously anymore, or what, what is the actual authority on it, and so I think that that's like kind of opening up um, all sorts of like alternative ideas and theories about things because, well, we, I mean, people just don't actually trust the, um, you know, the so-called authority on it anymore. Right, I think NASA's technically it stands for never a straight answer or something <laughs> to that degree. Right. Right. And, you know, what would, what would put these things, you know, it's like human, you know, the human desire, you know, and entrepreneurialism and the, de- and the, the human desire to go out and just find out and achieve these things. It's like people always say, well, you know, one of the conspiracy questions about the moon is like, well, why did we never go back again? You know, and that's a big question why we never went back again when we, you know, suddenly just did it, you know, flew like three missions, you know, within a small period of years. And then never again. And then the answer is like, well, there hasn't been a need to do it or we put the funds into something else. And it's like there hasn't been. No, there's huge interest in it. If this is just opened up and that's what I think, you know, what it looks like with um, with with Elon Musk is that there's this there is a human interest in going there just because people want to know if people want to know. Right. Right, even from a from an entertainment value, just just to go up there. I mean, it, right. it is interesting when you look at technology from the industrial age forward, how far we've come. And you know, you look at the, the combustion engine, and you know, we were flying B fifty two bombers in the forties, and then we go to the moon in nineteen sixty nine. Yet fifty years later, you know, we have all these failed rock, rocket attempts. So, it, you know, we we've digressed in that field. I mean, it's hard to believe. I mean, we got phones where you can you can skype people from the middle of the woods and uh you know yet the the technology on board the uh rockets going to the moon were were not even you know cell phone capable you know as far as the the technology back then i mean it had the processing power probably of a flip phone so okay you know and that's where i start to kind of question things there you know it's you're going to drop this uh the the lem on the on the moon and then you're gonna project up and catch uh, orbiter going four thousand miles an hour and connect back to that and then get back to Earth it just it seems a little outrageous to me but hey that that's just me yeah you know and 
Did I tell you? Did I tell you I saw a rocket recently? No. So I was in uh, Florida about a month ago um, for work, and I was hanging out on a. I was staying in a hotel that was on the beachfront, like just right by like like Cocoa Beach, right? Okay. It's just, just down the road from um, from Cape uh, Canaveral. Canaveral, yeah, from Cape Canaveral. Okay. And there was a a rocket went off. It was a SpaceX. Uh, project and I can't remember where it wasn't the one going to the sun. He shot up one that was going to the sun like a few days later. This was before that. I can't remember where it was. I think it's sure. going way out into deep space or something. And I saw it like I, I could see it from the beach and it went off at like one o'clock in the morning. So I sat out there on the beach by myself and watched this this rocket like go up and it's pretty far away, but I could see like the glare and I saw it go up into the clouds. And I tell you, it's like it it just seeing something like that is so incredible it just you know right, right. it just stirs the soul you know and it's like it and it restores your faith it restores your faith in the assertion that we can do something like that that man can accomplish something like that man can go into space we can shoot things up into space it can it can happen you know and so right, and that, <laughs> yeah and that really shows the you know adeptness of the non-natural aspects of our work right that oh, we're yeah. not tied down to the natural world and it really goes with the left-hand path work is that we can create rockets we can create biospheres we can we can orbit the earth and these modules and and, and live on our own terms not, kind of against the natural order and i, I think that's very much a, a facet of of you know the gift that we have to, to create these, these alternate realities for ourselves and, and uh, not be pinned down to uh, just these, this innate survival skill. Right, an innate uh, survival skill and a list of everything that you can and can't do that's already been determined, um, already determined by, uh, by a team of experts. But I mean, and yeah, you know, the gift of set, that's, that's what I saw, like seeing this rocket going up into the air it's like it reaffirms your faith in humanity in the sense that hum, humanity is the providence of this non-natural gift, which is the gift of the ability to conquer one's circumstances, you know, right. to, to, to be in control of one's circumstances. Right, and, that, and just that, that cre- the gift of creativity that, that uh, you're, you're, you can inf- – infinitely create these ideas and you can take them from your own subjective universe and, and make them, you know, concrete in the objective universe. It's, it's very magical. And it's interesting how, how people don't see it that way. You tell them that that's magic and they're like, oh, okay, you know, people want that Harry Potter or hocus pocus or, you know, right. But, uh, you know, I always explain to people, well, you know, what's all, what's, what's with this magic? What are you talking about? I mean, I always give the example of, you know, creating, you know, we're, we're both musicians. We talk about being able to hand somebody like a compact disc or a vinyl LP or a download card or point somebody to your website. You know, you had, you basically start with this blank palette. You've had this, this idea, you create an objective and then almost like in this Fibonacci sequence, it just unravels and unfolds like in the snowball effect. The next thing you know, you got a band together and you're composing music and you're recording it and then you're giving things names and you have themes that, that you're working with and you get artwork done and then you have like this grand piece of art that you can hand somebody and that, you know, it all started with this spark 
and you had this gift of creativity and you can actually put something together that's uh, dynamic and, you know, really illustrates the, the work that you do and, and, and share that. And then, you know, people can like it or dislike it, but you can get a reaction out of them. And then that creates a whole other alchemy of work. And then you may influence people to do their own work. And then once again, you have another snowballing emergence that, that happens from there. So it's, it's, it's fantastic. And it's, to me, that's like the easiest way to explain the magical arts. Yeah. So now you're making me think of Jack uh, Jack Parsons. Have you seen Have you seen that series that's on uh, that CBS series on Jack Parsons? No, I have heard about that, and that, 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 that definitely piqued my interest. Oh my god, it's pretty it's pretty intense. But I mean, that's that's an amazing thing right there. That this guy who basically, I mean, everything that we're talking about right now, you know, seeing rockets. Maybe you know Elon Musk going to go to the moon. You know, rockets going into space. This is all because of this one guy. Like just believed in this thing so much, wanted to do this so badly, you know, was just obsessed with it that he, you know, created rocket fuel. And all the time, he's like getting his ideas and inspiration from the esoteric philosophy of Aleister Crowley and the idea of do do what thou wilt and that human will, you know, which is, you know, which is a, a, a providence of the gift of set, that human will has the ability to accomplish these things. Right. And people take a negative connotation that, you know, do what thou will. And it, they, the first thing people think, think of when I, especially when I have these conversations with, with maybe non-initiates or people that, that follow a different path is like, well, when you say do what thou will, it, they, they take the connotation that you're taking from them. And it's, it's really, it's not that. It's that you have the ability of your own desire and passions to, to seek that you want to seek and become a master of your own dom- domain you know, practice and learn and, and better yourself and evolve, mindfully evolve. And from that, you can put your work into the world and make it a better place. No, absolutely. So that's the idea. That's the myth of the, the zero-sum game is what that is. It's like people, um, there's, there's this idea out there that the only way that you can accomplish anything is by, that, that you can gain anything is by taking it away from someone else. Like there's a finite amount of whatever, whatever it is we're talking about, resources, the ability to accomplish. Right. There's a finite amount of like, you know, human ingenuity, you know, in the universe. And that if you're going to do it, then you got to take it away from like someone else, which I mean, I, I think that that's like a, that's a fundamental idea in, in Thelema. You know, and the idea in, in, in Aleister Crowley's concept of do what thou wilt is that, no, it's not a zero-sum game. That you buy, exactly. right, that's part of your universal, you know, it's part of like how the universe, like how, how you fell in the universe, how you were created here is that you can, you can have infinite will uh, within yourself and there's enough space for all of us. It's the same way, and he did this, uh, um, he, he had this ana- analogy of every man and every woman is a star, Right, and this is the idea of like, you know, all the stars in the universe. There's, there's enough room for them all. They're not like fighting with each right. other. You know, they're not taking advantage of each other. <laughs> right, because it's constantly expanding, and the other there's more than enough room. And it's almost like you know we're like like Tesla trying to create the, this infinite energy. I mean, when you're creating, especially with your own subjective universe, it's your space, and creation is is infinite, right? But if if you take if you destroy you could technically potentially destroy everything, but when you create, it's kind of just this endless, you know, 
open vastness that you can just keep giving to the, the universe yep. your thoughts and your actions. Absolutely. So, okay, so 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 we, we went all the way out to the moon and the universe and everything. So let's like come back <laughs> let's come on back to Earth for a minute. So let's talk about um, how how did you find the left hand path? How did you get introduced to all these intense cosmic ideas? Let's say at a very early age, I was thinking about this the other day. I, you know, I was joking with some friends, you know, like about you know, when you when you're a child, your parents always want to put you to bed early, and you know, I have a sneaking suspicion it was more like they want to get onto their own nefarious activities. So it's like seven o'clock at night in the summer, and the sun's still on. It's like, all right, it's time to go to bed. You're a kid, right? Right. <laughs> but what happened? Well, what happens is you might not be tired, so you end up. I, I remember as a kid, I would wake up at three in the morning, and I, I would be struck with, you know, you had all this activity all day and all these things going on, you know, sounds and colors and you're constantly getting, getting all this, uh, all these filters going through. And then you wake up in the middle of the night and it's just dark and silent. I remember laying in bed and just feeling that stillness and that, that darkness, but also perceiving that there, there's something more going on than just what, what I'm seeing here in, in this one possible dimension. And, and it, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but no one had told me yet that this, this does or does not exist, these, these thoughts and actions. And then, you know, the dream work that you have as a child, so, you know, it's, it's almost like you can't differentiate what, what's reality and what's not because they're so vivid and you don't really understand the concept of dreams at that point. And I had certain dreams, you know, you have those floating dreams and you kind of wonder what that is. And then you get older and you start looking into it and you're like, wow, was I like, you know, doing an astral projection or something like that? So that, that type of thing, uh, resonated with me and, and being outside, I think I, I had initially started more in a, like an earth based kind of system that I, I could just feel my connection, you know, to the sun and then the earth and sort of looking more into Wiccan type of things. I actually belonged to like the seminary of Wicca at one point, like Nashua, but I think what, what kind of changed things for me was actually Slayer's Rain and Blood album came out, and, and I purchased that. And I listened to it, and it's just 30, 28, 30 minutes of just straight musical decimation. And something happened when I listened to that, and it wasn't just the imagery of you know the Prince of Darkness on the cover or anything like that. It was it, it struck a chord within me, and I, I was trying to figure out, like, what is this? And as this Kundalini kind of just came into being and just swirled throughout my being. And it's this feeling of potent power that I was almost invincible or could do anything. And I, I wanted to tap into that. So kind of essentially chasing that that, that feeling, but also how do, how do you get there? Obviously, I put this record on, I listened to it, and it changed my thought. And I became a musician, but I also started to think that emergent quality of that when you write something and you create something, you can actually change the emotions Um of others and even in, in, in a certain area and uh, the magic of that, you can get an argument with somebody, have a heated argument and leave. And if somebody came in five minutes later, they can feel the tension. So there's a lot going on that's just not visible. And it, it's, it's a mysterious uh, factor for me. Um, so what I started to see, it started a little bit with the imagery maybe of the left-hand path, but it also seemed like it was, it was a no BS kind of take on things. Um, certainly Anton LaVey's work rent, uh, resonated with me early on. It was very cut and dry and concise. And I think even to this day, I try to take out the esoteric hogwash in magic. Um, Crowley's book four was very influential for my work as, as far as like magical weapons and certain uh, meditation techniques. 
but I found, you know, a good percentage of, of the books that I read just, you know, was a little dense and or purposefully trying to mislead here and there. Um, so I found the work of Anton LaVey and then later on, you know, Peter Carroll and, and the chaos magic to be just very to the point, you know, mm-hmm. creating sigils, um, force fields, stuff that, that, you, that were practical, you know, and what I found throughout magic was that you have, you have to put your own time and effort and energy, willpower and practice into it. And then, you know, when you do what we call magical working, especially in the temple, you're really just being able to crystallize that thought, right? And it, it adds a percentage factor to your success, but really the work's being done out in the field. And mm-hmm. I think what the armchair magicians kind of miss on that point is they think that you know, if you follow the blueprint of some, what somebody else wrote in a book, A through F, you can just sit down in your parents' basement and you're going to get all these rewards. And that's just not how things work. So I found the left-hand path to kind of just be the, the most straightforward uh, way to, to, to be able to succeed in what your your will was um, making change in accordance with will. Yeah, totally. And, you know, man, you mentioned like, slayer rain and blood i mean that's like such a huge such a huge thing right there and there's just like something about it you know it's like slayer like none of their previous out al- or none of their albums after that ever like even though they're like better production i'm sure they're technically better musicians and everything there's just some essence in that in that album that is just indescribable and no one else, you know, no one else has ever been able to do, in my opinion, anything like that. You know, it's just like all, right. it, it, you know, all my whole experience of metal after that has always been, uh, it's always in comparison to Slayer, Rain and Blood, you know? <laughs> right, right. And it just, it, it evokes this, this primal feeling like w- within and it, it's, it's kind of scary too, right? And uh, it, But it's worth exploring. And they're like, why does this make me feel this certain way? But at the same point, very potent. And uh, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, even though, so, I mean, I mean, there's nothing like, I mean, it's all just, the imagery is just all, you know, it's all, all hell and, and violence and, 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 you know, altar of sacrifice and all of this stuff. And, and it, 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 it's not like highly enlightened as far as like, you know, the, if you just took out the lyrical content and stuff and you just like read the lyrics on it, it doesn't seem like there's anything that incredibly enlightening in it, but all put together as a whole, it's like the experience of it is just something like really, really amazing. And so, I mean, your, your, your whole narrative though, is just right on, on key with the idea of, of, of being a left-hand path, magician is just intimately tied in with being a left-hand path musician. Like for myself, I can't, I can't separate the two. When I, when I think about my story and how I found the left-hand path, I can't separate music out of it. And I think I've told you before, we had a long discussion at one point about, um, Oz, the Ozzy Osbourne album. Um, speak of the devil. Yeah. Speak of the devil. That's it. <laughs> the live right. album. that's so hard to find <laughs> now. And I was a kid and I saw that album and it's like, you know, he's like, you know, uh, spitting out a bunch of like you know jelly or something, jelly, on the co- yeah. yeah, red jello on the cover. There's runes around it and everything, and I'm like, 
you know. And, I, and yeah, and that, that's one of the mysterious things also. It's got the runes on it, and you're kind of like, you look at it, you know, I don't know what age you were when you discovered it. I mean, I was like the early 80s, I was, you know, very young, but I remember my brother got that album, and I was like, what is this, right? It's just like, you could, something spoke to me about the runes at that time even, but I couldn't quite decipher what they meant, but obviously I could tell that when I looked at the actual form that it resonated something with me. Yeah. And, uh, would later on prove, you know, very valuable to work as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think that album, when I encountered it, it was the first album I encountered that was forbidden. You know what I mean? It was like, um, you know, everything else I'd listened to, and I was like, you know, like, I don't know, like 12 years old, 13 years old or something like that in the early 80s. And, um, you know, everything I'd listened to up to the, uh, up until that point had been stuff that you could find on the radio somewhere. But none of that stuff. I right. mean, now you hear Black Sabbath stuff on the radio. You hear that on the radio. But at the time where I was, you did not hear any of that stuff on the radio at all. No, no. Right. And it's like, so that album was, and I didn't have an older brother. I didn't have any other friends, you know, who were like into this stuff. So it was like, I, I found it. I got it through like the uh, Columbia Record and Tape Club, I think. And I'm like, this is, the, I got that. I looked at it. I'm like, this is like forbidden, you know? It's like the forbidden then- treasure. Right, and and that's a key aspect also of our work in Left Hand Path is is the the practice of rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. That, that antinomian aspect um, that you don't you just don't find in any other philosophy or religion, and the, the the ability and the allowance of yourself to be able to say, hey, I can do this. There may be some rules and regulations that somebody else adhere to, but I I can create my own personal ethics and uh, do it thou will without having to be a negative connotation to somebody else, but working with you in your own space, that you can make your own decisions, that you have the right to make your own decisions. And if you even look at the classical sense of the Prince of Darkness stepping away from the group mentality and, and earn, you know, giving the right to others to be able to think for themselves, that's, that's really the, the key dynamic of, of sentience and uh, being able to have, be an isolate intelligence right. and be creative the adversary exactly and the other thing is you have to learn to like separate the essence of that principle that principle of antinomianism to separate it away from the mainstream judgment of it because the mainstream always portrays these things and i'm talking about music and 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 movies too film it always portrays these things in a um violent always portrays antinomianism in a violent uh, sort of like conflictual, like actually, like like real evil, like you know, kind of way, you know, um, you know, like all the and great, think, all the great, like you know, movies, you know, like you know, The Omen and stuff like that, right, right, uh, you know, Rosemary's Baby. Well, there's always this, like you know, there's always this, like you know, this like murder thing and violence like thing that's like thrown into it, and it's like you have to learn how to like separate the principle of antinomianism which is actually the principle of 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 you know individuality and entrepreneurialism and all these other things separate that from the propaganda that gets uh that that the mainstream t- tries to attach to it right and if you think about it you know when you're trying to be a dictator you don't want others to be able to think for themselves right and i you know it's, i think there's it's a scary thought to those that that are that seek power especially power over others that that people have the right to choose to do what they want in their lives and follow their own passions and dreams you'd rather the person just you know come home and 
maybe be locked in, you know, drinking every night watching, uh, you know, network television. I mean, that's a safe way to keep people controlled, right? And it's uh, the, the thought that people can actually create and, and, and follow their own, you know, perceived destiny. It's, it's a scary thought for those in, that want to be at the top of the, the food chain and, and control others. Yep, absolutely. Which a lot of mainstream religions have tried to do. No, definitely. It's just, uh, you know, the mainstream religions are a, the most obvious iteration of a central authoritarian control structure. Exactly. So let's talk about your music. So what's your end time illusion? That's the main thing that I've heard from you. I've saw the videos um, that you got on YouTube and stuff. So, so how do you incorporate or do you incorporate these ideas into your music? Well, I, at this point, I'm, I'm the I'm the OG of uh, End Time Illusion. So I basically write all the music. I do have a writing partner, um, Adam, who creates the, the lyrics. And the great thing about the band is that I, I can create the, these pieces of music and have a central theme and a vision. And I was just telling somebody the other day, kind of like I have this, this synesthesia where I, you know, I write in color. Like every song's kind of color-coded by some certain emotion. But then I can also share that with somebody in the band, like the lyricist, and then he can take his own take on it and go in another direction. So you get the kind of this quantum uh, variation that makes it very dynamic, where he has his own vision for the song, and I have my initial vision, but you can have both at the same time. So it's you know um, very uh, spectrum-related, where you can see different different aspects of it. But I've been able to tackle a lot of my initiatory subjects with the music. In fact, um, Deities at War, our last album, was part of a series that I was doing called Dicursus Initium, which I translate in my Davism version of Latin as uh, my path of initiation. And what I put over these nine songs, I call them Conceptus Novum, which is just nine different uh, facets of my initiation and the construction of a magician and, and, and what, what you perceive and encounter along your own initiatory path. So it was very fulfilling to put that last album out. It was about maybe a five-year process just from general concepts to writing and recording and actually getting it out and then doing some eventual tours. And you play, you play the guitar, right? Right. I uh, play guitar, some of the stuff I've recorded and or played the bass. Um, we, you know, I have a drummer in the band, um, different from the person that recorded that album. But yeah, we right now we're a, a four-piece, one guitar, bass, uh, vocals, and drums. Uh, we did do a tour, West Coast tour, this last summer, and you know, it's also a magic of being able to actually do things in 2018. Is that none of us live in the same state? You know, I live in Connecticut. Our drummers in Manhattan, New York. Um, Adam, my singer, is in uh, Framingham, Mass, and then our bass player lives out in San Francisco. But yet we can all use technology and share, you know, the music and ideas and, and the notation, you know, through the Internet and still come together and, and play as one when we need to. Uh, that, that's amazing. That's a, 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 an amazing usage of resources to pull all of that together. And I mean, you're I've, I've always been like really just blown away whenever I hear your stuff. I mean, you're. Um, musicianship, my friend, is 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 quite extraordinary. So, can you can you um, share a little bit about how you came to be in that situation? Have you always played? Did you start playing when you were real young? 
you know, I, I, my mom was a hippie and I, she was into like Hendrix. So when I grew up, like, you know, I became obsessed with the guitar and I remember asking for a guitar and I think they, they had bought me one of these like plastic kiss guitars. And I think emulating Jimi Hendrix, I smashed it within 24 hours. Oh my God. That's so awesome. when I was like, Hey, I want like a real guitar. They're like, yeah, I don't think so. So it probably took, you know, until the age of 11, I think I got my, my first actual guitar, but, um, you know the, the the technical aptitude of the shredder of the '80s, very you know, stood out to me. I mean, it's just something something about hearing you know minor scales ripped you know at 200 BPM plus, just you know, and presto on the metronome just just really resonated with me. Um, that said, you know, it, it's a initiation in itself to to learn how to play and get the the technical and physical parts down, as well as the mental discipline to be able to practice. Um, I know a SETI and favorite book in the temple is uh, mastery by george lennard mm -hmm. and one of the reasons why i like that book is that you can't ever pass over your fundamentals and um you know you can listen to end time illusion and be like you know wow how, how are they playing that fast but although you've been able to get to that level whether it's the drums or the guitar you have to practice fundamentals and i find that even in any you know discipline whether it's martial arts creative arts what have you, you got to have that core base of fundamentals. And, um, that's something I try to work with, you know, on a daily basis, you know, when I pick up the guitar, it's not like I'm just, you know, ripping, you know, through these songs, you got to warm up and you got to pay attention to your body and, and how, how do you get into that state of mind where you can actually get to that level of, uh, proficiency. So do you ever, um, sit around like, uh, with your guitar, like just jamming on it, sit around on the couch and the TV's on and you just like, try and like play the song whatever like you know music is going on on television at any given time try and play along with it oh yeah i used to annoy people all the time i'd be playing you know <laughs> hey here's the theme from three's company or uh beavis and butthead or, or whatever but that you know it's be part of being a musician is just you know hearing things and uh translating them to, to your guitar so it's fun i just you, know, you gotta have fun with it too it can't just be all work essentially yeah. um but no, it's it's just it's great. I mean, it's like a, you can meditate sometimes in in a lot of the music, even written on my solo album, where just you know I'm I could be out mowing the lawn and like I could see something or hear something, and all of a sudden like I, I hear a certain melody and I just run inside and I start playing guitar and like within a, you know ten minutes I've written like this new piece and I'll I'll make a demo of it and then I may go back to it next week or it could be like a year and the next thing you know you can hear all the layers on, on the album, you know, I may add orchestration or things like that, but it all started from like just one spark or idea. And sometimes I actually write like in reverse where, you know, if you were writing like a jingle for a TV or something, you were, you were given the objective right off the bat. Like, Hey, we're trying to sell, you know, toothpaste here, write a jingle for it. Right. And that, that's kind of dry and lame. Or you could say, Hey, you know, I just broke up with my partner. I'm feeling kind of down. I'm going to write a blue song. What I typically find is that, I just have a certain emotion. I put it, I let my fingers dance on the fretboard, figure something out. And then it's almost like a week or a month or a year later that I start to think like, wow, this song really resonates with this certain topic or experience that I've had in my life. So it's almost like the reverse rather than starting with the initial thought or objective and then writing the music. I, sometimes I just write the music. I call it this noetic dispersion where you just have this flash and it's almost like an aspect of automatic writing, right? You just like, your hand just kind of finds its way and you just write something and you're like, I don't know where that came from or what it means right now, but I like it. And I'm going to, you know, shelve it, put it in my, uh, my vault of music. And then at some point it just 
kind of resonates a certain idea and you can articulate a certain theme or an experience that you had in your life and it, it all kind of comes together. So what is your what is your theory on naming a song? Like at what point in the process do you say do you say here's the name of the song and then you work from there? It, it, it's, you know, to be honest, it's usually at the last thing, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, in end time illusion, I've, I've come, you know, to, to my singer, Adam and said, Hey, you like, well, I had a song and I was like, dude, this song is about X and it's got this title. Like one song in particular was, um, the veil of negative, um, sorry, the veil of negative existence, something like just stuck with me. And it was basically a song that I had written about the peaks and valleys of initiation, um, and that's one of the concepts that I work with is that, you know, we always seek to improve and we always wish to improve. But, what you know, what happens when you plateau? I mean, it could happen in the gym. It can happen on guitar. It could happen in your professional life. Not Everything is not going to be like a linear um, bar graph to the top, right? I mean, you're going to have these peaks and valleys where you fail and you learn from failing and you better yourself. But, you know, you're not always going to win. Um, so I thought that was kind of a cool concept for the song and it kind of just went, you know, I wrote it like in C minor and it just had like that feel to it. So, you know, Adam's like, oh, that's cool. Let's write around that. And he, you know, he penned out the lyrics or sometimes say, Hey, this is what I'm thinking for this song. Or he might say, Hey, I listened to this music that you wrote and this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going to write about. I'm like, Hey, you hit it on the head or, you know, we'll just go with that. So it's usually the naming convention usually comes towards the end of the process. Or at, at at the point where you're communicating with the other with your other uh, collaborators. Exactly. What I try not to do, especially in the band situation, is be the dictator. Where like, hey, this this is the music, and this is what you're going to write about, and play it like this. I mean, I have my ideas. I mean, I'm I'm a percussionist by heart. You know, I feel like an internal beat. So, drummers that I've worked with, I said, hey, this is what I'm feeling, and then if they come up with something, I say, hey, go with that. You know, I'm always. Um, I always promote everybody's own contribution and, and thoughts. And I've had songs kick back to me where like, you know, dude, we're not feeling it. I said, you know what? I'll just shelve it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, if, if, if the other people aren't feeling it, that probably means a lot of other people might not be feeling it. And maybe it's just, it's just, it's not good. Certainly quality over quantity. Um, I respect the fact that, that we can write as individuals and, and having that gift, but you also got to know where to cut it off. You know, I had a friend that I, a singer that I worked with and he used to brag to me, dude, I write 10 songs every day. And I'm thinking like, well, yeah, like a quarter of one of those songs is really catchy and good. The other 95% of what you wrote is kind of garbage, you know? Right. So you, you, you have, there has to be a filter. Um, and it's, 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 it's up to you also. It's a personal um, gauge that you have. But I, I'm very, I try to be very uh, constructive and take constructive feedback and, um, you know, allow for that organic process to, to work with a team and, you know, create the best product. But it all starts with what you enjoy and what you like first. I mean, if, if people want to come along for the ride and they enjoy it also, that's great. If not, you know, we're really into it for ourselves, you know, number one. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and everything you say, you're like, really illustrates the fact that collaborators are really important for finding, you know, what's really you know what what the good stuff really is like i say you you got to have some throwaway songs you know you got to like exactly. if you're going to do an album you're going to do an album you need to like come up with like 15 or so songs and throw away like you know at least like 5 of them you know before you like get to an album stage with it 
Right. And, it, and that even just happened. We, we have a new End Time Illusion album that we're in the mixing stages on. I, and I told Adam the other day, I said, you know what? We have this one song. I, I just I, I ain't feeling it. You know, it's like it just doesn't fit the other songs. I put everything into like a flow and how all the different pieces kind of come together. And, and the interesting thing is I had like a running order of tracks for probably a year. And then once the other tracks are coming along, we put some orchestration over it. I decided, you know, the song that I had like as the fifth song on the album is probably going to be now the first song on the album. And it's you're constantly mixing and, um, as I like to say, birthing the initiatory baby, right? So you have this right. idea and you're so close. And at some point you just basically got to, you know, get it out and just cut the umbilical cord and put it out in the world. And um, so we're getting to that stage right now. But as that's, you know, we're so close and like the eighth month here, you know, basically of, of this birthing of this initiatory idea, it's like, okay, I think we need to like, you know, addition by subtraction and, uh, maybe just put the, put the best quality out and maybe cut, cut the fat off a little bit, right? Right. And so the, so, so the last album is Deities at War, right? Yes, yes. And when did that come out? 2015. And we did a self-release on it. We had put the first two albums out on an independent label, and we just we couldn't find any... I guess deal that, that made sense. I mean, <clears throat> and it's, you know, it's a product of the industry these days. I mean, people just basically put music out, they kind of get out on the road. And if you're a, uh, even a part-time to a full-time musician, you're going to make your money mostly with merchandise on the road and playing out live shows. That's just the nature of the beast in 2018. So when I looked at talking with, you know, labels and people that could promote and, and distribute, it was basically like having to, to hand over everything. Right. And I, I think the most important thing, and I think Adam would agree in the band, is that we own the rights to our own music because it's so personal. Mm -hmm. And um, the thought of just passing over the publishing and the copyright, which most of the companies want because they, they want to make something off of it. Mm -hmm. um, we just decided to self-release release and uh, you know be true independents and, and, and do things our own way. Well, the other thing that can happen is they, they can take those rights, and even if they don't even make money off of it, Still, they are going to prevent. It will prevent you from being able to make money off of it. You know? Exactly right. So there's enough, like, and you can make enough connections now, where you have like music tax and these other industry, you know, industry companies that you can you can send and you know put your music in and possibly get on soundtracks and and what have you if that's what you want to do with it. So yeah, uh, there's more than enough avenues there. And I think we've kind of agreed, even internally in the band, we like the mysterious nature of the band. Um, I don't, you know, see us being this commercial powerhouse of in the metal community. It's kind of like, you know, back in the day, you know, you, you know, when we grew up, like in, in the '80s, you didn't really see and hear a lot about some bands. I mean, they might come on tour here and there, but the only thing you had was that album to look at a picture of them, and it's you, you couldn't go on the internet and see all these obscure videos and things. It was a treat just to be able to find any like news article like in a magazine or something so i kind of almost want to go back to that where it's more like this mysterious kind of nature surrounding the band right where you have to dig for but, it where people if you're going to yeah, have I fans for it there are people that have to dig for it you know if, if they want exactly so uh tell me about you you went on tour for this album recently right yeah so we were able to uh go out for 11 days um eight dates throughout california oregon nevada and arizona and it was it was a lot of driving but um i'd even mentioned to you maybe previous to this podcast that it's, just, it's the whole experience right it's the you know getting in the van those times you know you got a six-hour drive through a desert with your buddies and you just you're talking about life and 
you know, your own initiations and, you, you know, the conversations just spark ideas that, that are, you know, material for more music or just enlightening uh, aspects, meeting new people. Um, there's this emergent quality that we notice at every show that, you know, we might turn up at a venue, might be a dive bar. There may only be 50 people there. You know, you, you, maybe the, the uh, attendance isn't the greatest, but you hit that first chord and, and we just we would just create what I called, you know, the electric ritual road show where, you know, the lights go off and we just put the show on and, and there's like this electric energy in the air and everybody becomes one. It's like this unity. Mm-hmm. I mean, metal's known for that that kind of tribal feeling of, of everybody being one but you have a room full of individuals and for like a half an hour everybody's just like in tune as like one it's like this unity together is this brother and sisterhood and uh everybody's just vibing i mean we were looking out the stage i mean the sound guys were like coming out behind the board and throwing down in the pit and you know bartenders are just like screaming for more and it was just it was just very it was like a thrilling electric energy it was just it was magic you know it was just create great this 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 chamber that we were creating it's just fun meeting new people and sharing that experience with them. And that that's the best part about being on the road and just seeing new locations and different climates. And, uh, you know, we were able to go to like the Redwood forest, um, elk prairie. And we spent some time in San Fran, got burnt in the sun in Arizona, went to Carlsbad, California, went to Vegas, got to spend some time with the Luxor and, a, you know, we're in a pyramid and interestingly enough in the pyramid, there's a ziggurat in the pyramid. I mean, it's just, just very good visual and uh, entertaining experiences. Oh yeah, it's amazing. There's nothing else like it. Um, when you when you mention the um, you know driving across the desert, talking to your 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 buddies in the van, you know that's that's like your tribe, you know. And exactly. Some of my like you know fondest memories are during the times of my life when I was doing that touring with my band and, and just sitting up late, like trying to get to the next gig and having these conversations because you're basically, you know, I was, and I was just talking about this with, um, on the last show with Christoph Bathory from uh, Dawn of Ashes about how like the show is basically a, a ceremony. You know, you're basically a, 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 a live show from the, from the point of view of the musician, who's like the creator of this, you know, actively engaged in it. It's basically a uh, magical ceremony. And when you're on tour, you're basically uh, doing a magical ceremony every night with a with a new group of people who are there, who willfully, you know, even if it doesn't matter how big the crowd is, everyone who's there wants to be involved in it, right? They're all there right. to be involved in this. And so, so that, I mean, after doing this, you know, three, four, five nights in a row or maybe more, you start to get into a, a different state of consciousness with it. Certainly. And, and like time doesn't, you just, you don't even recognize a clock anymore. And it's, I've always talked about that too. I mean, I, I you know, I, I have a great profession and everything, but you know, you eat when you want to eat, you sleep when you want to sleep and you, you just get into this, your, your own space of doing what you want when you want to do it. Um, obviously you got obligations at a time to be at the club and do the show, but uh, on another hand, you, you just lose sight of the the restrictive nature of trying to fit things in. Like, hey, if I got to eat, I have to eat between this this time and t- this other time because I got meetings and I got people I got to see and I got these responsibilities. And when your responsibility is just showing up at a venue in a different state and you know rocking out in this you know created magical chamber, it's it's a uh, it's very enlightening. It is. 
Very enlightening. So you got a, a, a new album you're working on? Yeah, so we, we tried to, you know, work with different concepts and um did this one it's it's uh gonna be interesting. The the working title right now is Anamnesis Genesis. So it's basically a focus on self remembering and what's the spark of that. Um you know, like Carl Jung talked about, you know, this collective consciousness and it's something that's resonated with me for a, a long time is that, you know, in our DNA, do we have these coded memories? Um, and it even goes to the fact that I like to use the analogy of, you know, that, that we're organic computers, right? That we, that our brains are the mechanisms that we work these meat machines with is like this hard drive and, I personally feel that we're embedded with so much software and we're just trying to figure out how to like run it. And, you know, I, I think of the concept, like you give, like if you gave like a six year old kid, a computer that was loaded with everything you could possibly have on, you're like, here you go, kid. You're trying to, you know, how is he going to get in there? You got passwords you got to get into, you got to figure out, you know, instructions on how to use, you know, something. I mean, even if you give an adult Adobe illustrator, they're not going to create this like masterpiece off, off the top, you know, right. They're going to have to learn how to use it. And I think that's kind of like the struggle and the mystery of life is that we're trying to decode and relearn stuff that we already have inherently within ourselves. Um, so we're kind of working with a, kind of a concept like that. Like, I mean, we have a lot going on and a lot of potential. It's just a matter of, you know, we have the, where do you find the keys to unlock these doors? And every time you unlock a door and you, you walk through that into a new room, there's another room with a door. And, and how do you keep unlocking those? And relearning and i think you know the egyptians and other cultures kind of had that same feeling that we we know and there's like a, a self-remembering that can take place with, with the work that we do absolutely so i think uh i think that's like an idea from plato too that um we, exactly that all knowledge is actually a form of remembering right because all of the knowledge is within us already exactly I mean, DNA in itself is just—it's just a peculiar thing, and you can, you know, go to the conspiracy route of ancient aliens and how we've been toyed with and what have you. But um, there's certainly something that sets us apart from from other forms of life, um, and that you know, even goes with, you know, that uh, frame of consciousness and having the gift mm -hmm. to be able to create and and things like that. So that self-remembering, it's just, it's just an interesting concept. And we're, we're kind of placing that in some of the, the song working titles that we have on the, on the album. So I'm excited about it. Um, happy with the music, um, a little more open. There's a little black metal influence and there's just, uh, some old thrash, you know, on the album. And it's just, it's, it's going to be a fun album. Sweet. So would you, so, so that brings up a good question. So how would you classify, um, the music of end time illusion. I heard it. I thought death metal. Yeah, you know, and and, and we we had a long discussion on tour about that, where we may have like almost like set ourselves back from maybe some uh, potential um, opportunities over the course of the years because we don't really identify or pigeonhole ourselves with any you know form of metal. I mean, when you talk death metal or deathcore or black metal, these are like very strong contingents and genres or subgenres and within metal. And a lot of people stick together. And, and we've always just said we play metal because I mean, my influences are broad, you know, from Black Sabbath to Venom to mm -hmm. Morbid Angel to, you know, I love jazz. I, I like, you know, all forms of music. I'll even listen to old school rap, you know, 
not that that necessarily gets into, into the end time illusion stuff, but I'm very broad and I, and I like everything and I don't really feel like I have to write in any specific mode or you know, if I write a riff that I like, I'm not going to say, well, it doesn't really fit end time illusion. I say, how, how can I make this fit into end time illusion? So I say we kind of play technical metal, although some of the, the newer stuff's a little bit more open. There's even some like kind of like Southern metal kind of like riffs on, on the album, um, more obscure stuff. But yeah, I guess when you when you listen to it, uh, I, I may have sent you some links like the the song uh, "Deities at War" or the Dissenter off "Deities at War." I mean, it very much would go into like the death metal category. But you know, I come from the actual original death metal scene in the early '90s, and back then it was like you know gore and Satan lyrics and this, that, or the other. And I, you know, maybe that's definitely changed and become more broad over the last 25 plus years. But um, like I said, I it, it's hard. To pin it down because I don't want to pigeonhole us in any genre subgenre, but I, I would say if you listen to us, yeah, you, you, I, I could see death metal, but like I said, I'd probably just say we're technical metal. Yeah, no, it's uh, that I, I I hear all of that, so it's definitely like really extreme stuff and 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 very um, technically all very profound and real heavy. So genres are just just crazy like that you know what i mean it's like it's, it's so hard trying to deal with genres i hated dealing with genres i hate even like talking about right, them right. you know but ultimately you have to it's like it's like you have to eventually like name the song so the other guys in the band will be able to know which song it is we're going to do next it's like okay well i'm gonna have to pigeonhole it then you know you have to tie it down to something so other people can uh you know latch on to it but you just reminded well, that, me that- when you mentioned like old school rap didn't we do some? Didn't we do a um, karaoke of old school rap in yeah, Hawaii? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. I think you 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 hit up Gin and Juice, and I I did it's tricky from Run DMC. <laughs> That's right. I remember. It's all coming back to me. Oh uh, yeah, that's no, good stuff, man. It's fun. I mean, it. I'm, to me, music's all about you know creating an emotion within, man. And it's like on one hand, when you're when you're playing like that total dark, you know, death metal stuff, and you can get into that vibe where. I wouldn't say it's negative, but it's just this potent, dark feeling. But then, you know, I like party stuff, man. I like I like 70s funk. I like feeling happy. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being happy and feeling love. And, you know, left-hand path doesn't have to be, you know, you walk around all looking goth and, you know, look like you're pissed off all the time. And I, I think that's just that superficial, um, preconceived thing that's pushed on, on left-hand pathers, right? No, yeah, absolutely. No, it's all about walking. It's about being happy all the time. You know, it's exactly. about it's about feeling yeah, real love you, all the time. You know, exactly. And I and even when I talk about with people, you know, the, the Prince of Darkness, you know, who creates the imagery? It's usually the opposers or the adversaries to those that that are able to create. So the devil's always perceived as like a goof. You know, you look at Saturday Night Live, and I think like John Lovitz on like the People's Court. You know, he's like the silly devil, or yeah. you know, you have the go the goat the Baphomet kind of like look. And to me, it's more like I remember like the movie Fright Night. You know, it's like the 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 evil guy in the movie is like this debonair, you know, kind of guy. You know, he's like the classy guy, and I, I see myself more in like a sports coat than I do necessarily like you know, blood and fangs. Right. Right. Absolutely, hundred percent. So, what do you think about nowadays? These days, there's so much. Um, left-hand path symbolism uh, creeping its way into the mainstream. You know what yeah, I'm talking about? Know, it's, it's like I can get, yeah. you can get, I can get, you know, everyone's wearing Baphomet shirts now. I mean, you know, back yeah, in my day, a, it was a big deal oh. to even find a Baphomet shirt was hard. Right, right. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah, and it's on one hand, it's a little, it's kind of cool, but then it's also a little corny too. And it's, I think, especially the pentagram. I mean, it's like God, like can any, can you guys be any more original? It's like every like metal band that comes out now. It's like if we put a pentagram on this, we're we're gonna be we're whirring, guys. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the thought process is, but you know, that's one thing I like about the Temple of Set is that you know the intrinsic nature and what, the way we perceive the Pythagorean symbol um, having this this quality of the golden mean people don't get that you know they just look at the shock value and you know i guess you know, like a marilyn manson or maybe like some black metal bands and things like that and if they're using like a pentagram or an upside on cross it's a shock value thing i think it's worn off at this point I mean, it's 2018 things have been used like over and over again but i can look at the simple lines of the inverse pentagram and i i can i see more than that i see like i said the the unlocking of the uh quest and of perfection and and the value in our initiations and things like that and which you know is remiss i believe with you know most of the population that, that use these type of symbolism mm-hmm. so what about um you have a book project too going on right correct so part of that initiation uh and in, in music work um i was the director of the the black muse element which i'd taken over from some other fine uh, initiates in the temple. And, you know, I'd, I'd done some writings for the scroll of set over the years and just my own personal work, especially with an end time illusion. So um, I basically break down my work into one sigil and it's, it's kind of hard to really construct all these ideas down to like a, a finer concept. And I, what I break it down to, and, and the working title for the book is going to be a uh, die musicon, which is the musicon, which is a sigil that I put together, which is the Bracano rune, a quarter note, and the Waz scepter. Mm-hmm. And what that speaks to me is, you know, from Bracano, what we have is the process of coming to life, that big bang, that, that imagination from our noatia. Um, you know, this fertile ground's been planted and we sprout this new creation and uh, we're feeding this mental landscape of experience and influence in our study and practice. And the quarter note, you know, representative of that driving uh beat right you know the heartbeat of our work um bringing art to life and sustaining it but you really need to be in control of what you do create and the wasp scepter having that dominion aspect over what our work and also the power and protection we got to protect our work we got to put out that quality over quantity when we put it into the universe so i kind of fused all these symbols together and i call it the music musicon and people are like musicon that's kind of a weird term what does that mean and i'm like you know in my school of being concise it's it's just music icon you know no, no, nothing nothing too mysterious about it but um so the book's going to be brought you know basically a bunch of essays that i had put put together over the last nine years um one of those is a, a big section on attunement some work that i do uh using um work to kind of align powerpoints in the body also, I guess, like the Voces Magica or Words of Power from the Greek Magical Papyri. But then also the nine songs off of Deities at War had broken down these nine concepts. So I have a pretty good working draft right now, um, kind of in the editing phase. And I hope to get something more concrete together by 2019. Awesome. That sounds awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, and, you know, the problem is working on so many projects at once. It's like, it, you know, it's tough. You want to spend time practicing, like I said, the fundamentals so you can keep up um, 
with, with what you're working on, but it's, it's hard not to not be writing. I feel like I'm always writing something, you know? Yeah. No, it's awesome. And, and, you know, it totally makes sense to have like multiple projects like that. Cause we were talking about that earlier, like, um, how like your work can, um, plateau, you know, you could reach a exactly. point where you plateaued with something. And so sometimes you just need to leave something there for a while and you switch to another line of work. So, you know, you have like music, you have your literature, and I'm sure you have like other lines of work also in your life that you can like, you know, bounce back and forth to as, 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 as your life circumstances dictate. Right. And this book, it's going to be a book on the music magic connection, but it's really about like, I guess, how do you create your own brand and, and you create the person that, that you are now? There's a lot of what I call replication going on, like in the music industry, but the core, the first concept that I worked with is really the construction. How do you construct your own brand? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of goes with my other, my other company that I put together in Versity, which we could talk about as well, is that certainly you're made up of all your influences, but at some point you're outputting, this work that's uniquely your own. And I, I like to use, you know, from a non-natural concept, you know, styrofoam, for example, you know, it's something that's, you know, you don't find it naturally in the earth. You had to put all these ingredients together to, to make it. It's very non-natural. And if you find it in a landfill, it takes a while to decompose and it's, it, it, it's, it's very useful, but then it could also be a deterrent to others. But then you look at like Coca-Cola as a brand, there's only one Coca-Cola, you know, and they, maybe they have, they have these secret recipes and you're going to have Pepsi and RC and all these, you know, knockoff companies. But when something comes out that's like uniquely innately original, there's only that one. And, and how do you, how do you create that for yourself? You know, mm -hmm. you're going to have these influences, you're going to have these ingredients in this vessel and this construction phase of your work. But the key is, you know, how do you build up to having that unique um, essence and in portraying that in your work. Oh yeah. So, and the, so the book touches a little bit on that. And it's the um, essence. That's like what makes it unique. I think is that exactly um, because you know, I mean, with music, you know, there's only so many notes, right? There's a finite amount of notes that exist in the scale. This is something that the, right. the, the KLF talked about this in 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 the manual um, that there's a finite amount of notes and 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 and. But what makes a song unique, what makes the final product unique is not the not so much the unique combination of notes because it's always, you know, it's actually similar things being used over and over again. But it's the essence of the people who put it together makes it original. Like somehow the the creator's essence is somehow imbued into the work. And that's like what really gives it its uniqueness that's what makes it uh individualistic because it's the nature of essence exactly. human essence is is in inherently individualistic and, and yeah you can you can even have the same note and it's, it's how you see it and, and the funny story on that is is even the d sharp i i was telling my you know somebody i was like you know i wrote my 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 solo album i tuned down a half step from standard pitch which is e to d sharp so I was just like, hey, everything's in D sharp. And he's like, well, technically that's uh, E flat. So if you're looking at the circle of fifths, it might be more standard, say, E flat. And I'm like, well, D sharps, I guess it's enharmonic um, if you were to speak in, in sharps. But obviously, going with my name, it makes sense. So it's kind of funny. I'm looking at it as D sharp. This guy's looking at it as E flat. It's the same fucking note. <laughs> 
but it's how you look at it, right, and how you perceive it, and that that's part of the the individuality of music is that you know you can you can it's it's up to you, right? It's how you, it's your vision, right? Absolutely. No, I always wondered about that. I mean, it's a D sharp and E flat. It's the same note, right? It's the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sharps and flats, and you know, like it depends on what scale you're looking at. I mean, you, like I said, you might look at a standardized version that somebody came up in a framework that works, circle of fifths or something, and it's all flats and what have you, and that, that system works. But hey, I, you say tomato, I say tomato, whatever. Right. right. It's all context. Exactly. Something like that. <laughs> So that's really exciting, man. So I'm uh, looking forward to this book coming out. Um, what about – you live in New England, right? Yes. So so how is that? Very unique area. So how is that? Is there, is there magic in New England? <laughs> I got to tell you, it's great. And I, I, I appreciate it more and more the older that I get. Um, you know, when I grew up as a kid, you know, I was like, I had these aspirations of going to LA and making it and, you know, the West coast and all that type of stuff. But, you know, the diversity that, that we have here, just the, the four seasons, um, I mean, you can go out on almost any block in any street and take a left-hand turn and get lost. And you, you just don't find that. Like, and it's, it's like the Midwest, I've toured the Midwest, but I mean, you can look like five miles down one street dead straight and it's just, it's just a flat, you know, plateau. Yeah. And, and that's got its own magic in itself. But um, the, just there's a, something mysterious here um, in New England. I mean, just the makeup of it after the last ice age. I mean, you got boulders that were put in odd spaces. You got mountains, streams, ponds, rivers, you got the ocean. I mean, it's like, you basically, it's like a playground for everything, but historically, um, at least since the settlers have been here, you know, we, uh, I run the Starfire pylon in Salem. Um, you know, you got the, the whole witchery around that, but, I try to take it back even a little further and look at what's this primal energy that, that we feel here. And there's a very large Native American base prior to the, the settling. And I, I want to kind of tap into that. Um, and I spent you know a good year doing work, working at Native American shamanism in, in New England. And what it came down to is that the primal force or energy here was known as Habamak, which is no, you know, known as like a, this Native American devil and kind of working with that energy. And what I suspected after working with that is that, you know, the prince is known in many guises. Um, it doesn't have to be Set or Satan or Baal or however you perceive it or Votan. You can perceive this primal energy and uh, a whole series of contexts depending on um, Aboriginal areas, uh, natives, or, or time periods, right? Mm-hmm. So I try to draw upon that on that and uh, said so that's been great work, but also, you know, the work we do in the pylon up here is try to travel around and make use of the time and space, um, whether it's, you know, working out in the, the woods and some type of off of like a hiking trail or some type of potent energy source such as Salem. I mean, modern Salem's like a good diverse ground for up and coming professionals, but great restaurants and obviously the historical nature of great, you know, buildings and establishments and uh, HP Lovecraftian uh, tales and things like that. So quite a bit to work with here. Yeah, when I was spending some more time out there uh, a couple of years ago, and I think you and I met up once, uh, once or twice there in uh, Boston, 
but that whole like part of the country is so Lovecraftian. That's what I think going around every everything there like reminds me of like Lovecraft for some reason. Right, right. And we were, you know, we were able to meet up one time in Providence, obviously a very uh, Lovecraftian spot. Yeah. But um, yeah, just the general makeup of New England. It's just uh, there's just so much to work with here. And the interesting thing, you look at Lovecraft and you you look at the stories and okay, it might be a story. Some are based on maybe some hints of um, things that had happened historically and or data points. But you you look at a, a system of magic that can be even be created through that and it's still potent you know you can use these uh ancient one kind of like names and implement them in magic systems and it it, it works somehow it it, it resonates and it, it draws something from you yeah absolutely and that's the the, the playfulness uh and uh well, all right man so um i want to like make sure all of my listeners go out and check out End time illusion. You, we can, we can. Where can we find you online? Uh, www.endtimeillusion.com. But we have um, albums for sale on CD Baby. Um, three full albums are available for download. Um, and if you want to just check it out on YouTube, it's, it's free. I'm more about um, just getting out there and being heard. So check out YouTube. But I think we have all of our albums streaming for free there. We have a few videos that, that are out. Um, so yeah. Excellent. Awesome. Check that so, out. I know. And everyone needs to go like, check out, uh, your music. You can find it really easily. Like search for end time illusion on YouTube and you'll find some badass videos there. And then we'll look for your book coming out too, man. Maybe you can come back, come back when the book is out and talk to us again. That'd be great. I think 2019 is going to be a stellar year. Um, the new End Time Illusion album should hopefully be wrapped up, um, hitting hitting the uh, waves at that point. The book hopefully can get out. Um, I should be on tour with Dead by Wednesday. We have an album coming out in 2019. We'll, I'll be touring the United States uh, with them. So I always like to throw it out there where the locations are at and meet up with people and have uh, – some conversations that's something i was able to do on the end time illusion tour meet up with uh some friends and meet new people and uh that's what it's all about mouth to ear um initiation man it's like online is great books are great but there's nothing like having conversations and even a podcast like this is great but just being able to meet people face to face and uh pick up on people's energies and auras and uh share that energy for that time period that's that's what it's all about absolutely man you're right on the money there yeah, thank you for putting this together, man. I, I love your work, um, getting the word out, the, the the correct word out on the left-hand path. And uh, I hope that this is like the alchemy that it spreads and people get learn something from this conversation. Feel free to reach out to me and continue to, these discussions and uh, enlightening our, ourselves and uh, furthering our work. All right, so uh, D, you want to tell us about this song we're about to check out? Right, so the general concept for this song was having your own court. Like in ancient Egypt, you know, the court of the pharaoh would have been comprised of counselors. It was a place to deploy strategy, and, and you could also try those who would defame the throne, right? So taking on a modern approach, you know, looking from a Setian aspect, we could A, look at our selected advisors in a royal network. Um, so our core, inner court, Sometimes you have to look at what's your core competency. So my core competency might be writing and playing guitar. My core competency is not recording music. So I have 
you know, an A game player that can record music for me. I'd utilize him. He's in my court, right? If I'm trying to promote the album, I might use somebody that's, you know, a master of marketing. So you put together this this royal network, right, that you work with so you can focus on your own core competency. But also you're going to at sometimes have, you know, these enemies that are kind of working against you. So back in the day, you know, you bring those people into the court of the pharaoh and you build like a ring around them. And, uh, you know, whoever would defame the throne have to pay the penalty. So the song kind of touches on those aspects, but also, of, you know, being your own god and being able to make those decisions and being like make things happen in your life and uh a push away the haters but b bring in the people that help you um get your product out there and and your art out into the world so that is in the court of the pharaoh all right well here it comes in the court of the pharaoh and as you all allow these vibrations to see deeply into your being. Remember to always keep the dark fires burning. I have existed since the morning. 